Hey, yo, Internet, support for this episode of the Combat Jack Show comes from Bevel. You've heard about the signature fade with the Bevel Blade from Nasir Jones, but what about a trim? Listen, if you've been patiently waiting for the Bevel Trimmer, the wait is over, Internet. You don't have to have them shits on the back of your neck and in your chin and cheekbones anymore. It's here. All orders are shipping now. Go to getbevel.com slash jack today. And for a limited time, when you buy the Bevel Trimmer, you'll get the first month of the shaving system for free internet. Free, don't ever let them tell you that Combat Jack never gave you anything. That's getbubble.com slash jack. And now back to the show. Want to hear the greatest street story ever told in 60 seconds? Meet Kane Garrett, a tall, handsome, smooth, calculated criminal turned drug kingpin. He had buildings, stores, businesses, and was a king amongst his people. He controlled the whole black market. Then it all crumbled when the feds came in and tossed him in jail for tax evasion, so he was locked down for seven years. While incarcerated, he studied business and got his master's degree. This only made him a smarter criminal. Once he got out, he became a college professor. He was on the lookout for a young protege to start his new improved street business. That's when he found Basil, a young hustler out of Flint, Michigan, and gave him all the game and knowledge to move tons and tons of unstepped-on cocaine. He plugged young Basil in with a cocaine connect, and they began to get money. A lot of money. Cain and Basil grew a great bond and were getting rich together. Cain had a beautiful daughter, and she was his pride and joy. Cain forbid any of his partners or crew to ever get involved with her. However, Basil fell victim to her beauty. They started a secret love affair behind his back. This is when the plot thickens. She is murdered, and the blood is on the hands of Basil. This starts a street war that shakes up the entire city. The city was on fire and chaos erupted. Shootouts, kidnappings, lies and double crossings. Teacher versus student. Basil versus Kane. Find out what happens in the new book by New York Times bestseller Jaquavis Coleman in The Streets Have No King. Order your copy today. Hey, yo, Internet, what's up? You tuned into the Combat Jack Show. What's going on, y'all? It's been a it's been a it's been a while, right? We've been a little bit off our schedule. I apologize. I feel a little bit like a hypocrite, you know, especially since I think it was about three weeks ago to a month I war I talked about how I tweeted my ten podcast commandments about, you know, just the shit that I feel it takes to make a, a, a successful podcast. And I think one of it was either rule number one or rule number two is stay consistent. And your scheduling, I kind of fucked that shit up the past couple of weeks. But it's not because we've been jerking wreck, B. It's because we've been working really hard. Mm-hmm. About to get back. Just chill, man. What the? How you coming in the conversation? How you coming in my monologue? Hey. King? How you jumping in the monologue? I didn't say anything. You, hmm? Just <laughs> <laughs> jerking wreck. Yeah, jerking. Just, just rock with me, man. These young niggas don't know shit, man. <laughs> y'all y'all know a jerk. You, you know what they... <laughs> But anyway, so King is in here jerking wreck right now. Be safe. Be safe. But listen, um, like I said, man, we've been working really hard, but we're about to get back on schedule. 
Um, so we might have been a couple of days late, but, you know, we don't fuck around the combat jacks. Are we going like who's been holding you motherfuckers down these past seven summers, my niggas? Mm. Uh, who's been holding y'all down? Anyway, OK, OK, enough shit talking um, this week. And a project that I've been working on for the past um, year comes out. Um, Mogul, The Life and Death of Chris Lighty. Um, raise the bar, listen to it. It's been, it's the, it's, I'm so proud of this project. It's been the hardest project I have to work, I've had to work on in a, in a very long time. Wait, do you have to pay for it to listen to it? Cause I know when yeah, I, heard, yeah. nah, you can listen to it. You can listen to it. Just download Spotify. Just download Spotify and listen to Mogul, man. You know, support good work. And you know, I don't fuck around. I'm giving you that good work. What's up, King? Now you can jump in the conversation, God. Peace, God. What's going on, God? What's today's <laughs> mathematics, God? Yo, wisdom, light, sunshine. I don't know. Okay. What's going on? How you feeling, man? <laughs> I'm good, man. Chilling. Chilling. Yeah? Chilling. I want to I jump into this. We have any announcements, well, man? I just want to commend you first and foremost. I've been talking about like this whole uh, mogul project to a lot of, Thank lot you, of insiders and shit. And um, they got you working like like this is your album. You know what I mean? That's what I compare it to. like You really out here you know, contributing to the culture in a major way. And uh, we appreciate it. What, what artists that, am I, man? Am I Nas? Am I Waka Flocka? Am I Ray Shremard? Am I... What are we doing, man? We... Huh? Little little Boat? Little, <laughs> yeah, little Yachty. Little Yachty. Little Twisted Foot? Like, <laughs> Yo, Mena, man. We got Mena in the studio. This one of those. Thank you, King. Yes, sir. Wait, hold up. Before we jump into this, man, we have any announcements or anything like May that? May 19th. Oh. May 19th is at ATL, right? Atlanta. Atlanta. Yes, at the Music Room. At the um, Music Room. I love Atlanta, man. Combat Jack. Uh, Combat Jack Live. Bi- if you want the the, the, the the link, go to the Combat Jack Show IG and uh, hit up the RSVP link. We'll, we have some more announcements with that later on, but, you know, it's lit. It's lit. Uh, Mena yeah. just came back from Tokyo. How was it? Get, get speaking to the mic. So you, put you the mic to your mouth. Put, come on, man. Get, don't don't be afraid, man. So what's up, man? How was Tokyo, man? Like I, 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 I'm really proud of you, man. Like most people, Why are you proud of me? because they take their family to uh, for for spring break. They'll take their family to Atlantic City, to Mi- Miami, maybe bro. California, maybe Puerto Rico. You got up and you went to a whole different continent, my dude. But I'm different. Though. How was Tokyo, man? Um, it was very fly. Really. What was the flyest thing that stood out to you, man? The bullet trains were dope. Mm-hmm. Um, Did they have to shove you in? Nah, nah. You, you got a plan, you know. You got a plan. You can't leave during rush hour. Right. It was dope. Man. Did you go to? Did you have any nightlife? Did you and the, and the lady get to see some of the nightclubs or anything? Nah, I was there with my daughter. Right. It was a family trip. I mean, you know, you could get like a rent a, a, a Japanese capsule? Ba- a capsule. Yeah. Put put the put the daughter in a capsule. <laughs> take three hours. Go to Rapungi and go to the clubs and come back, man. Nah, nah. Yeah, but 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 how did it feel, man? Doing that, man. It was dope, man. I, you know, I had a lot of fun. I always wanted to go there. It was just a dope experience. Was this your first time on a different continent? No, I've been in different. What other continents you been in, my South dude? South America, Central America. Okay, yeah. of course, yeah. of course. Mm. Well, it's good to see you, man. You all right, man? Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You all right? Yeah, I'm good. You I'm sure, good. man? You've been moving yeah, a little. Gim- nah, Gimlet. Shot- <laughs> what? Mogul. Mogul. Okay, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, Jonathan Men is one of the producers on a, on a project, man. You got your name up in lights, man. I do. You know? Yeah. People don't know about your extensive history in podcasting. Stay low, man. Stay, stay low. low. Keep firing. Yeah. All right, man. Get the fuck out, man. <laughs> get the fuck out. Listen, internets, man. Um, today's Combat Jack Show guest. Um, I've wanted him on the show for a long time. I, I definitely admire his work. I definitely admire his resilience. Um, it's very thought-provoking. 
Um, and this dude is just so fucking talented, man. When I see people so multifacetedly talented from like the directing to the monologues to the rapping to the singing to the writing sometimes i just get a little jealous man <laughs> sometimes i feel a little jelly i, I mean but you know I, I could admit that but i but i have a lot of admiration for this man um you know when we talk about people that do it for the culture that do it with passion that, that do it day in and day out has been doing it since 1991 mm. consistently there's not a lot of us in this game doing it, man. So without further ado, let's welcome to the Combat Jack Show, Mr. J. Smooth. Yeah. Yes, Jay sir. Smithy. Yes. Thank yeah, you so yeah. much, man. It's truly, you know, I've been following you since you were telling those wild ass stories on Byron Crawford's blog. Wow. Watching, watching you build everything. So this is truly, I love everything you built here and you just keep taking it up to higher echelons. So it's truly, truly an honor to be here. Thank you, man. But isn't that the game, right? Isn't That's that the game? The, I, what I hope to aspire to, you know. You have the longest running underground hip-hop radio show of ever i mean you know some, ever, right? somebody will always pop up it was on some 10 watt station and dispute that but we've been you know i've been putting in my work since 91 Jay, for ain't sure. nobody been doing no shit on no 10 watt station <laughs> since 91 <laughs> come on man but seriously how does that feel man like like when 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 people um bestow upon you the title of being a pioneer I mean, I'm, I just feel blessed to be able to contribute to the culture and represent it. You know, I grew up real introverted, isolated kid. Got an internship at the radio station WBAI when I was 16. 16? Yeah. Wow. Got got to what, work my way up. What the fuck did you know about radio at 16? I mean, I ain't know nothing about doing radio, but I was definitely a listener. You know, of course, I was listening to Kiss and BLS every yes. Friday and Saturday. Yes. And I grew up in a real politically oriented household so i was listening to wbai getting all the righteous information on there so i was already familiar with the craft and enjoyed love listening to radio and then i got a chance to get an internship with some of the shows i loved on bai and just was very lucky what, what, to work what, what my way the up shows that you were working with on wbai uh well i was helping run the evening news which uh, was run by a woman named amy goodman who's well known for democracy now yes. and wow. uh this brother, Anthony Sloan, was the engineer and producer of the Evening News, and he also did these Prince specials where every six months they would just drop all this unreleased Prince stuff. Back then. Yeah, yeah, wow. yeah. So, and he did, he produced. kind of prophetic right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's like, that was a big part of what put me on this whole path was loving Prince and wanting to connect with that. And then he worked on a show named Creative Unity Collective, which was like a black sketch comedy that, show. That sounds real blackity black right there. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Ujima, you know what I'm saying? Umoja yeah, and the whole yes. nine, all the principles, man. There was a lot of that at BAI, for sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Underground Railroad. Yeah. That's a, that's, 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 a, that's, that's a heavy name, man. Yeah, I mean, back at that time, nowadays... When you're trying to think of a name, you Google it to see who else has it. Right. And 100 people have it. It was a different thought process back then. But it was right at a point starting in 91 where people were starting to catch on to hip-hop being mainstream. Mm -hmm. But there was still a lot of material out there that I thought was amazing that people weren't up on yet. So I felt like we were going to be the conduit to get that underground stuff out to people who weren't going to hear it yet. So, you know, in my teenage mind, that was a fresh name. Coming up, man, were you? did you have the opportunity to be influenced by Mr. Magic? Oh, absolutely. Listen to Mr. Magic. Oh, hell yeah. What? Magic. Yeah, man. Friday and Saturday, it was Chuck Chill Out and Red Alert. Chuck Chill Out and Red and Alert. And Mr. Magic and Molly Mall, for sure. Yo. 
Um, and, and were you a fan of like Frankie Crocker, man, the WBLS? Definitely Frankie Crocker, Roscoe. I would check in the KTU, all all that old business. Uh, you know, Imhotep, Gary Bird, who yes. I'm, blessed, I'm blessed to work with now yes, yes. on WBAI. Yo, that's crazy. Your, your radio legacy is impressive, man. It's, yeah, it just feels really good to be part of a family. And especially, I got a chance to be part of a really strong, thriving underground hip-hop radio family in New York. As soon as I started my show, Bobito Garcia took me under his wing. Back which, is, when he, which is big. Yeah. Now, when did, did they start their show before? They started their show about six months before okay. me Damn. in 1990. So Damn. they were still, it was back when Stretch Armstrong was still named DJ Skinny Bones. Right, right, right. They were starting off on KCR. And Bob was working at Def Jam down on Elizabeth Street. I was working with him at the time. Okay, at, yeah. At Def Jam. I, I started working in 89. I left in, in 90. Yeah, so he found out, and he was he was the type to really try to be supportive of anyone coming up in the That's game. That's dope, man, as opposed to being like, oh, you, you trying to jack out shit. Right. February 3rd, mm-hmm. 1991. That's your start. Yep. Um, how were you viewed within the station as a, this 17-year-old kid? I mean— Did they give you free reign, or were they like, yo— They gave me free reign just because they didn't understand anything about hip-hop or anything young. Like BAI is basically an old hippie station. Yes. A- at that time, everyone else there is politically from left, the '60s. For the most part, right. Politically left, but they don't know anything about young people culture. Right. They knew that hip hop was a hot thing. They was talking about issues, so they wanted somebody to represent that. They were just going to trust me to represent however I was going to represent. So it was definitely a position where I had a lot of freedom. The only challenge for me was people like that. They understand that hip hop is speaking truth to power, but they don't understand. Hip-hop is really valuable because it's incredible music. Yes. So getting them to understand, like, I'm going to play a Cool G rap track that's not saying anything revolutionary, but this is going to be just as important right. because of what he's doing with his flow and his cadence and his composition. Like, it's that battle of letting people know, like, it it doesn't have to be woke in order to be valuable. Like, to me, Anti Up is the most life-affirming, <laughs> positive song in the world. Because you can die at any moment. Right. You're about to, like, that song is to like, die, so seize, about to seize the day. Exactly, yes. right. <laughs> Getting people to understand that, especially nowadays, you know, I do a lot of political work on the internet. So there's a lot of people who, they don't even know I'm a hip-hop person. They know I'm the social justice dude. They don't so even know a, you're black. That too, <laughs> that too. <laughs> so it's, it's a similar challenge I bring now to like trying to represent hip-hop being about something, but also letting people know you got to respect it for the craft and the art first and foremost. Right, right. Those early days, man, were you nervous, man? Oh, hell yeah. You're an introvert. Yeah. How does a fucking introvert jump into fucking radio and, and vlogging and public speaking house, way? Yeah, I mean, it's... <laughs> It's, I think for a lot of introverts, like there's a lot of like they say Johnny Carson was mad introverted. But once he got on stage, it's a dynamic where you're in control and you can communicate on your terms. So it doesn't bring the same type of social anxiety. I think right. it brings out a different type of confidence that you don't have in other situations. But it was still challenging as hell. Like there's whatever. It's like. They say when you're going to fight Mike Tyson, you have a plan until you get punched. Until you get punched by Mike Tyson. I came in with all kind of plans about, okay, I'm going to fill these two hours with this and that. When you're in front of a microphone for the first time and you got to fill two hours of space, the, you learn from scratch and you used, how that's and actually going to work. And you used to do work. this all alone, right? For Yeah. I used to, man, I used to do pause button mixes. I would spend 
all week making these elaborate mixes to sound like I was cutting, scratching, scratching back and forth <laughs> with the pause button. I would come in and host. These these guys don't know what the fuck you're talking about <laughs> with the pause button. You know about the pause yeah, I button? Used to do, I used to do my own, like, you know, the little mixes with the walkman. Like, I used to pretend like I was mixing but do the... To the pause button. But I'm saying these cats don't really know what the pause button is. Oh, the new guys? The new guys. Nah, of course. The new guys. Listen, listen, pause. (laughs) Pause. Why, um... Main Source, man. That was that. That was your first record. Main Source, yeah. Uh, Friendly Game of Baseball Friendly by Main Game Source. First track I ever played. I felt like that represented all the ingenuity and creativity, and the righteousness that I valued so much. And you know, that was still in the time when we were coming out of you know Benson Hurst. Yes. You know, all those racially charged yes. police brutality issues from the 80s were still hot. And that's what and we of were, course, it speaks just as much to today. You can put that track on. And that's what we were still so conscious as a young hip-hop nation, man. Like, with Public Enemy and then the advent of X-Clan and, you know, just all this Afrocentricity going on in the culture at the time, man. Yo, let me ask you something, man. 27 years. How do you maintain your passion? I mean, the most important thing is just keeping a collective around you that wants to take advantage of this opportunity of being on the radio. If it was just me coming in all this time, I would have been burnt out. But having this platform that lets other DJs come in and build a place in the culture for themselves, having artists come in, like I was blessed to be able to give Mr. Voodoo and Natural Elements their first exposure back in the 90s. Uh, DJ Spinner, who obviously Mm -hmm. is a legend now, started out DJing for me on the show. Right, right, right. So having this space is just... It's kind of like our church that we come together once a week and just celebrate the culture and other people get to come in and find their path through the door that I'm holding open. Like, it makes it easy for me to keep coming back. Hey, yo, Internet, man, this is really special, man. Today's episode of the Combat Jack Show is brought to you by the new Spotify original podcast, Mogul, The Life and Death of Chris Lighty, hosted by Reggie Say, a.k.a. Combat Jack, a.k.a. me, the co-founder of the Loudspeakers Network. Let me talk my shit, Internets. Mogul tells the story of the music exec who changed hip-hop and shaped the careers of some of the most beloved, biggest hip-hop and non-hip-hop artists of all time, like LL Cool J, Missy Elliott, 50 Cent, Nas, Diddy, Mariah Carey, so much more. With one of the most illustrious careers in music, Chris Lighty rose to the pinnacle of musical success before an untimely end. This story is more than just music. It's the story of the American dream told over rhymes and dope beats. Man, this is crazy, man. I've been working on this shit for a year. It's been hard. It's been enlightening. Yo, tears were shed, man. I had to shed some tears, man. I'm not even bullshitting you. Listen, it comes out this week, Internet's Mogul, The Life and Death of Chris Lighty, a Spotify original podcast produced by Gimlet Media and the Loudspeakers Network. Follow and listen to Mogul starting this Thursday, April 27th, every week on Spotify. Raise the bar, internet, mogul. Let's go. What are some of your memorable moments with regard to cats that you gave, other cats that you gave shine to that you didn't know would become household names or even legends on your show? Yeah, I mean, it was wild back then, especially for the first few years before Hot 97 was really popping. Pretty much any artist coming up was going to come to the New York underground shows to be heard. Right. So we had Wu-Tang come up and it was... How was that, man? It was a trip because it's at that point they're this like they're the hot act that but has no this twelve inch out were. right a bunch of motherfuckers yeah yeah it wasn't like legends 
Like now, the fact that I had eight of them in one room is amazing. Back then, it was like, okay. Well, let me tell the story. So Please. Uh, so they come in, and uh, one of the interns has like a, a towel on his face, and he's bleeding out of his nose. And then Method Man comes in, and he's like got blood dripping off his fists. <laughs> and it turns out they had gotten into a fight. Like they were slap boxing in the lobby. Like playing slap boxing? They was, and then it got serious, you know, how that'll go. So they came in like, it was like, uh, you know, the Richard Pryor routine where he's going to be boxing and the dude comes out hitting himself. Like, <laughs> he's hitting himself. I know he don't give a fuck about me. I'm like, they're, so, so they, when they're coming in fighting like, with oh, themselves. No. Right. Like, what are we getting ready for? Right. So was it tense, man? It wasn't like. Well, I think he meth was in a bad mood from having gotten into this altercation, right. so he was just kind of sitting there with his hand like and and we were trying to pick out a track to freestyle to for them to freestyle every beat we brought up meth was like nah I don't. we played uh red man tonight's the night was out at that time, and he was i I feel bad to say because they're best buddies now, but at the time I was like, no, I'm not rocking with that Damn. and we finally found a song, and they all rhymed over was, was it. old dirty there. Old Dirty was there, hell yeah. How was Old Dirty, man? How was a young Old Dirty, man? He was cool, but it was it was the kind of thing you see when they got in that big argument in the movie. Yeah. They got into a whole thing afterwards because I think Meth felt like Old Dirty was hogging the mic too much. Like they were for a half hour after we finished the show, they were there arguing That's crazy. about who should be on the mic. And the, the people who run the radio station were telling me I can't leave because they were like, what are these? They, ne- they, they were possibly one of these. Ne- yeah, one of these Negroes might pull a knife <laughs> out. You can't leave. <laughs> Yo, that's so crazy. I had to wait for them to finish settling their dispute. That's crazy, man. Who else, man? Uh, man, who? That's so. Uh, it's hard to even think. I mean, because like we had Biggie. You know, there's a part in the Biggie movie where where Puff calls Biggie on the phone and they're trying to book things and Big and Puff is like, "Hey, man." We're not doing too good. We could only get you a few college shows. Well, that was my show they were talking about. <laughs> Yo, that's crazy. How was Biggie, man? He was cool. He just like, he's un, unplanned. He just called on a payphone and was like, hey, what's up? They said, they said, I should call up the show. I'm good. And we just chatted with him for 10 minutes. He was mad down to earth. And I met him another time in person. I used to hang out at uh, 105.9 WNWK. Um, I'm sure you're familiar. There was yes. a whole stable of shows there, the Awesome Two, the Dirty Dozen, uh, you know, Hank, DNA Hank Love. Yes. Um, so I used to go, we would all hang out and then like go get dinner afterwards. And one of the artists that used to hang out all the time at WNWK was Shinehead. I don't know if you remember. Fuck Shinehead. Reggae, kind of reggae, Shinehead. reggae hip hop yes, artist. I, remember, I bought his album. I bought yeah. the, yeah, I bought yeah, the yeah, album. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, he had some joints. Um, so anyway, so, we, so he was driving us up to... Uh, what was the name of that place? A three something o'clock. It was on Eighth Street. You know what I'm talking about? The diner. Yeah, on, yeah. On Eighth yeah. Street. I, I know what you're talking about. Like the not rock around the clock, but some shit. Some rock. I think it was name. I think it was name around the clock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we pulled. So Shinehead drove us to that spot, and we were walking in, and this window rolled down on a car, and someone was like, "Yo, that's Shinehead," and it was Biggie calling him over, like, "Yo, I'm a big fan of your work," and he was just like on on the humble, like, it, it, "I got to really see that." As much as people talk about Biggie just being about his business, he was a real fan for of sure. Of course, of course, man. Um, you know, when I look back on those days, man, like it was definitely a um there's definitely electricity in the air. It was a different New York. Um and 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 and, and every moment was just so electrifying. But 
I didn't know how legendary it would be. Like some of those moments. That's, did, that's why it's hard to even remember those moments now. Yeah, because you didn't know at the time. Like I was at WKCR when they, the night that they had Nas and Big L and the Fugees all come down. I was there in the studio. And they were, you would never. Wait, wait, wait. You said Nas and Big L. And the Fuji. They were all at the same Columbia, I think Taish Harris set it up. They all came through like a, well, every hour on the hour. There was another person stepping up. So that was like, and this is like when Boofbaf was coming out. Yeah, this is before. When, it was when, when they sold five, when the Fuji sold. Exactly, how many? Right. They sold like five, allegedly. Yeah, before five, before Salam Remy copies. saved their career. Yeah, you know yeah, that, yeah. King? They I sold like that. five cops. Nobody, get the fuck out of here. That's crazy. The Fuji. <laughs> Yeah, but back at that time, like, the Fugees were not the Fugees right. yet, so we were watching, right. like, okay, that one, the, how, that how, how Lord, was, L was Boogie is all right. That's she, cool. She, she could I look back now, like, I can't believe I was in that room. I know, right? But you, you probably thought that prize was going to be the star, right? <laughs> <laughs> Yo, man, um, thoughts on when you look back at those times, man, and you look at the growth from where we are today, man, what are your thoughts in just terms, of, in terms of, like, how this is the most dominant voice arguably on the planet it's amazing to see everything that hip-hop's become i mean growing up at a time when we saw our generation create this incredible culture and expression and having so much pride in it while 99 percent of the world doesn't care or doesn't take it seriously that's something that i think below a certain age you would just never understand not that you can't be just as passionate about hip-hop but being there while the house is being built, yes, like there, there's there's a different sort of connection and protectiveness. I think you're gonna have. Sometimes I wish, like I, I mean, I, I I love my experience, man. Like I love, like not knowing what hip hop was because hip hop didn't exist. And then my man slid me the 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 the, the Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five at the Audubon or the Cold Crush versus the 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 Fantastic Five, and it was like, oh, this is hip hop before. But I, sometimes I wonder how life would be. If I grew up with hip hop already, would I take it for granted? Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's hard for me. Like be yeah, as being around for hip hop getting going and being around for the internet getting going to yeah. me are the two pivotal those are two different realities that you would never understand if you weren't on the other side of it. I just share with you my first hip hop moment, man. What was yours? Man, so the moment it really clicked for me. I was at uh, my friend's birthday party from grade school, and they put on uh, Eighth Wonder by the Sugar Hill Gang. That was the one that really, like, I had heard Rapper's Delight. I thought right. it was all right. right. I think I had already heard uh, Planet Rock, but right. that sort of techno, it wasn't really clicking for me. Right. When I heard Eighth Wonder, like, that had the funk. It was, oh, okay. And from then on, I was all in on it. And my dad was actually a poet. And he connected with it pretty early. He was actually the one who brought home the message 12-inch. So your dad yeah. put you on the hip-hop in a sense. Yeah, my dad was a poet who used to work with some of the original last poets, right. uh, especially Gylan Kane. That's crazy. So he man. was. So it was. He had an affinity for it real Which early on. Which is rare back in those days because you were the one as a kid that stumbled onto it, but your pops put you on. Yeah, I mean, I was already into it, but right. it was... From the message on, we were both, like, clued in together. Right. Let me ask you something, man. Like, um, outside of your show, in this world of hip-hop radio, man, like, what do you think were some of the greatest hip-hop moments in radio? And, for example, I'll tell you, one of, one of my greatest moments was, I think it was 88, 
and I was in a cab with my cousin Fritz, and we were going down. We were down by um, Washington Square Park, and it was Red Alert. We were sitting in the cab, and you know, all hip hop wasn't dope back then. A lot, we had a lot of clumsy shit back then. A lot of that plotting type beat and motherfucking screaming. And then when your man put on The Bridge is Over. Yeah. I heard The Bridge is Over in a fucking cab on Red Alert. And I was like, yo, what? I lost my shit. One of the greatest moments in hip hop radio for you. Man, there's so many. I don't. I mean, that was every Friday and Saturday from nine to twelve, right. just waiting to hear world premiere, premiere, yeah, premiere. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then also, after I discovered the underground shows like Adelphi and Hofstra, one of my favorite memories is uh, Jeff Foss's show on uh, WRHU Hofstra. He was the one who had Nation of Millions first to play. I mean, Wild Man Steve. You, you heard it on the radio. Yeah. and Before they released it. Yeah. And that was a station I was. Public in, Enemies, It Takes a Nation of Millions. Yeah. And I was in Harlem at the time growing up at my dad's house. So that was, I had to stand on one leg with the wire hanger to get the reception. And he played about five joints off a of Nation Do of Millions all at once. Whoo, man. He definitely, he played Neither Living Bass Heads yes. for sure. Because that was the one that was like. There it the, is. Re- the revolution has happened when right. I heard that joy. And there were about four. I think he played Cole Lampin with Flavor, like three others, I forget. And that was just like, I brought that tape to school and everyone in oh, school was huddled. Oh, hell yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was, t- you know, crackly as hell. But you had it. Yeah. And, that, yeah, that's, and that's an experience people don't have now right. is just. Having Gra- grabbing that have that low ass quality exclusive that you share and like cherishing i cherishing it still yeah like, like this- i i listen to buster's verse on scenario over the phone off my friend's cassette <laughs> and taped it and no no he had it on okay, tape okay. and he played it for me <laughs> that, over the that phone would be crazy if you take and then it. and then the tape ran out and he had to turn it over to the other side to hear the rest of the verse yo that's crazy man i remember you know what's so crazy like let's talk about like public enemy man like i had no idea that Public Enemy was going to be so important to the culture because the first, I remember like when uh, Rebel Without a Pause dropped, right? When Rebel Without a Pause dropped, that song was so aggressive that it was all the New Jack City cats and the Suzuki's and the Benzes that were rocking. I thought it was like a drug anthem. Like I was like, yo, Public Enemy is like the most gangster yeah. niggas out here. These niggas will blow your mom's right. titties off. Right. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I thought they were so... And then they just pulled us in and fucking uplifted the nation, man. Yeah, that's what I miss the most. And it's it almost seems <laughs> unreal thinking back now. Like, nowadays you take for granted conscious music is for conscious people, quote unquote. You know, trap music is for people who are into that mindset. But back at that time... Everyone on the corner was blasting Public Enemy. Yes. It was like Rebel Without a Pause was just like oozing out of the concrete everywhere you went in the city. And I miss that sort of being able to have universal reach amongst the people, regardless of what the message was going to be. I feel like the industry has segmented us into you listen to this and you listen to that. Yeah, you, you, yeah you're a trap rapper. I mean, at, back then, everybody represented the culture, unless right. he was definitely like, you know, perpetrating the fraud. Like, we didn't, we didn't embrace him. And I, I'm so... I'm so, I feel so embarrassed that back then I didn't embrace Hammer, but we couldn't embrace Hammer because yeah. Hammer wasn't that, the shit that we was Yeah, I mean, of. it turns out in real life, he was the realest dude he out. He was the realest but dude. But musically, it just, he just wasn't speaking our language. Exactly. 
Exactly. So you know what? I'm, I'm gonna jump for you know what? Fuck that. Let's let's stay back. Tell us about your household and growing up, man, and and and, and what was what it was like for you and your earliest influences, man. Well, you know, I grew up in a real artistic household on both sides. My mom was real heavy in the jazz world. She studied jazz piano under uh, John Lewis from the Modern Jazz Quartet, if people are familiar, and uh, wrote lyrics uh, for a lot of jazz musicians. And my dad, like I said, was a poet, um, so I was around that a lot growing up. So you had to be smart. I mean, I, I had to try my best, you know. I, I definitely had those, those uh, curiosity genes put into me. And you know, growing in the eight, growing up in the '80s in Harlem, I went back and forth. My dad was in Harlem, my mom was on the Upper West Side. Okay, so they they were they were divorced. They were, yeah, they were, yeah, they broke up when I was like four. Right, right. Um, so and were you an only child? Did you have siblings? I was an only child. Okay. Yeah, on my dad's side, I had a few cousins around my right. age. So, right, right. So I was around them a lot uptown. So, so what books were you reading, and what what you know what were you listening to? I mean, I was definitely a real precocious reader. I wanted to read whatever was the raw political shit. There used to be. A store named, I don't, I don't think it's still there. It might be. It was named the Liberation Bookstore on Lenox and like. That uh, does not exist anymore in 2017. Yeah. <laughs> not, not in Gentrified Harlem. Yeah, I'm, I'm not the surprised. The Liberated Bookstore. Sa- sadly, <laughs> I'm not surprised. Yeah, the, yeah, the Liberation Bookstore. Liberation, it was in, right. a little bit down from Schomburg. Okay. Um, and it was just like this hole in the wall that just had all the political activist revolutionary books and i just used to go up in there and grab everything like this was the type of store that they don't have self self-help fiction non-fiction sections the shelves have names like know your enemy and get woke they, they, they didn't say woke at that time <laughs> but course, the equivalent yeah, yeah. in the 80s yeah, exactly so i would pick up brother. like every everything about the black panthers and COINTELPRO, all those pathfinder press books about COINTELPRO. of course all the malcolm x yes. speeches um, you know, all the, all the books that were hot at that time, like Jawanza Kanjufu, Conspiracy to Destroy Black Boys. I would pick up everything like that I could get my hands on. So you, so you were a, um, not only were you a student of, of hip hop and the culture, but you were also a student of race at a, at an early, at an early age. Right. I mean, were you, did, were you, were you drawn to it or did you feel like you were forced to it? I, I, no, I wouldn't say forced. Right. I mean, I grew up in a family that was connected to those issues for sure and just being someone whose parents are mixed and when people look at me they aren't sure what i am it kept race at the forefront as something that we all live with but it don't always be making sense so it's something that i need make sense right right did it make sense to you like because i didn't know you were black right for a long time did it make sense for you when you looked in the mirror I mean, for me, it did because, you know, I grew up being raised by my dad and me and him look alike. So I see my father in me. Right. But people who are just meeting me, they're not going to have that they're context. They're going to connection because of the difference. And they're going right? to see a bu- they're gonna see it a bunch of different ways. Right. Like I, a lot of people will meet me and assume I'm black, assume I'm Latino, assume I'm Arab. You know, white people will assume I'm white almost always. Right. So it lets you know that. Race is a reality we live with, but, but it's, we're it's, not it's, always it's making it, it's, right. It doesn't make sense. Right, right, right. Um, what were your thoughts though in terms of your appearance and race and where you fit? I mean, I think at that time I felt some kind of way when people would ask a lot of questions about it. Like if people asked, "What are you?" I'd be like, "Well, what do you mean? What am I?" Like I'd ask them a bunch of. But I put know, the question as, back as on kids, them. Kids, we're, we're very blunt. Right. I'm black. You ain't black. Yeah, Did yeah, you yeah. face that a lot? 
not as often as you might think, but right. it definitely would happen. And back then, I, nowadays, I can take it in stride. Like, I feel like, of course, when you look at me, you're not going to be sure. But back in those days, I would definitely probably give you a hard time about it. Right. And I think that's so a you part had a chip of... on your shoulder. I mean, I don't know if I would put it that way, but anything like that, when you deal with it over and over again, it gets, it gets you're going to have short patience. Right. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. And I think it encourages you to... Like, I... I was going to be passionate about hip hop and I was going to be passionate about politics anyway. But having that as something that's at the forefront of my person walking in the room so that you don't have to wonder where I'm coming from, I think gives you extra incentive to want to be about it also. Personal question, man. And I always wanted to ask you this, man. Here you are, you know, one of the keenest, sharpest minds about race. Like you understand it. You grew up studying it. You know how to break it down, right? Right? I mean, I try. No, but you, and you do a great job, right? But how is the white privilege? I'm like, like, like seriously. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely uh, undeniable that I, I benefit from some residual white privilege. <laughs> of course. For sure. It's not consistent. Right. And I don't always know because most of the time I don't know how people are reading me, hey, but, there's no, but there's no know. doubt. You yeah. No, right? Yeah, but there's no doubt. I mean, I worked for a program named StoryCorps where you record oral histories. And so people come and sit in the booth with you. And it's a real intimate thing where you're helping them record. And I, my partner when I was doing it in Atlanta was uh, a dude named Jason Reynolds, who's a real dope writer. And he's like, you know right away that he's black. Put right. it that way when you right. walk in the room. And having that experience of I go in the studio with somebody, then he goes in the studio, you can see right away it's not a verbalized thing. It's an intangible thing. But people react differently to being in that small space with him compared to being in that small space with me. Right. So that, I mean, there's definitely a lot of ways that people are going to be more comfortable with me in certain circumstances. I think that's a part of why my messages can connect to audiences they connect to sometimes. And I think it's the kind of thing that you have to be aware of and try to use to speak on behalf of people who don't of have course, that advantage. Like, I don't, I don't think you, I don't think you can just abandon or renounce your privilege, but be aware of it and try to use it to change course, the system. Of course. I mean, definitely. Of course. Hey, yo, internets. Support for today's episode of the Combat Jack Show comes from Bevel, the first and only shaving system designed for people with coarse curly hair and sensitive skin. You've seen some people talking about the award-winning Bevel trimmer, and now you can hold on to one yourself. My G, it's like the fucking lights. It's like the lightsaber, iPhone, Apple product of shavers. The shit is amazing. No more waiting lists. All orders are shipping now. The Bevel trimmer contains four plus hours of cordless power. Zero gap adjustment in seconds. An easy-to-clean blade designed to repel dirt, oil, and other buildup that comes from your nasty necks and can lead up to irritation and a soft-touch grip with a 360-degree non-slip handling. And for a limited time, internets, with every trimmer purchase, get the first month of Bevel Shave System free. Just head over to GetBevel.com slash Jack and stop fucking around. It's GetBevel.com slash Jack for your first month free of the Bevel Shaving System. You deserve to look good, so bring smoother skin into your life with Bevel, man. Stop shaving like a pauper and shave like a boss. Why is it so difficult to talk about race, man? I love talking about race. And, 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 and that's one of the reasons why I so embrace this digital age. Because, I mean, maybe you might not be face-to-face 
with somebody, but it's so easy to get your thoughts about it. And then people, how they react to it. Some people, of course, are that silly and they, they reject it. But then you find like there's this collective of people that you can either educate or they can educate you or you can have this great dialogue that's on this great platform. Yeah, I mean, I think the the biggest thing that keeps us from being able to talk about it is most people think of racism as this all or nothing good person, bad person thing. Like bad people are going to be racist. If, if I'm racist, a, if I'm a good person, I wouldn't be racist right. as opposed to all of us living in this country, living in this culture, being human beings who develop implicit bias, which is what all human beings do. We're all going to be fucking up on that account in one way or oh, another. No, no, no. I, I, I had to look in the mirror recently and yeah. say, you know what, motherfucker? Like, you're prejudiced. Like, I, I'm talking about me. Like I, I am, yeah. like, I am prejudiced, and I have to challenge myself at times in terms of how I respond to certain situations because, you know, I'm not happy with how shit is. Right. And that's not to make a false equivalence like we all deal with that equally. Right. You know, if you're a white, heterosexual man, then you got a different level of issues to deal with than others. I'm not saying we all deal with it the same way, but all of us are going to have a natural tendency to fuck up on these issues sometimes. So if we want to be good people, we should be comfortable with checking each other on that. It should be understood. This is how good people help each other be good. But we have this defensive. Well, if, if I say that you said the wrong thing, you did the wrong thing. You think I'm saying that you're not a good person because right. we have this binary understanding of racism. By that's way, not how it really and, works. And that's, that's what you broke down in your TED Talk, which was brilliant. Um, and, and, and that's really what it is, right? Like embracing the fact that none of us are perfect and all of us have, have these shortcomings, particularly when you're dealing with somebody that's white who may have some issues. It's like, no, no I'm not condemning you, but admit that right. You have some races. Yeah, you. Yeah, we go through things you're never going to go through. Right. You need to listen and be humble about that. No matter how well-meaning you are, you're a part of a system that maintains an unjust status quo. You got to be real about your place in the system. Like that's believing you're a good person is not good enough. You got to be ready to get checked to and be keep learning. Because right. that's one of the biggest things about about your talks on races. I'm not calling you a bad person, but be accountable. Yeah, and then, look, there are bad people. I'm not saying everyone should take the approach I take to the conversation. I think we need, you know, after the election, because the results were so fucked up, I think a lot of people feel like we got to find the one trick that's going to fix everything and it'll work right next time. So a lot of people are saying, well, we need to talk about these social justice issues this way instead of that way and find the one right way. But I don't think there's ever one right way to talk about these issues. I think some people are going to be in a position to reach out with compassion and try to find common ground. Some people are going to have a skill set to drag somebody and shame them. I think there's a need for that. I think shame can influence people's behavior just as much as love and compassion can in the right circumstances. So I would never say that I found the one right way to talk about race, but I think you should evaluate what are my goals in this interaction? What is my skill set? What is my temperament and get in where you fit in? But but you but you you do it so eloquently, man. And, and going back to to your your TED talk, man, you were so diplomatic and compassionate in talking about race, particularly in a room full of white people. It was Hampshire College for sure. Um, but so but how do you tell somebody that they're racist? Like how do you how do you how do you how do you approach that? I mean, like I said, it's up to you. Right. I mean, in I'll the just situation, be like fucking racist. Yeah, White and, I, and a, I get think, the fuck out my face. yeah, I think there's a place for that. It, I mean, to me, it depends. What's your relationship with this person? Right. Do I need to have an ongoing relationship, or is right. this the only time I'm going to talk to them? Like, you need to figure out where 
the, the strategy is going to have to vary depending on a whole bunch of factors. But to me, when there's a chance to do it, I want to try and be as clear as I can and as blunt as I can while also honoring the human connection that we have. Like, right. we're both human beings trying to figure this out. We all have our differences. I'm going to check you as bluntly as I think you need to be checked, but I'm going to respect that you're a human being. I'm not going to insult you. I'm not just going to alienate from your humanity right. because I feel like you should it on mine because I'm giving up a piece of my humanity when I do that. Of course. Um, one of the things that you said on one of your vlogs which blew my mind is that, you know, because race is this man-made construct, it's, it's fucking a fairy tale, it's false. But one of the things that you that was so brilliant that you said is that racism was designed to be very difficult to have conversations about. Can we can we talk about that? Yeah, I mean, our relationship with with racism and race in the United States is a product of a need to justify using black bodies for capitalism. It's it evolved as a way to justify something that's unjustifiable. So it's only natural that the construct has evolved into something that's illogical and makes no sense. And whenever you try to grab hold of it, it's going to slip out of it's your fingers. It's so elusive, man. Yeah. So that, I mean, and so there's never, I, I feel like. Uh, so it was designed so that we can't really have yeah, and, honest conversations about it. And design doesn't necessarily mean people had a plan and conspired, but, oh, but it was a brilliant capitalism plan. bends everything to its will right. organically. That's right. how it's going to go. There didn't need to be a conspiracy. So in 2017, man, aren't you kind of relieved that discussion of race right now is so robust and delicious? I, it's so spicy. It's got so much pepper and paprika and whatever. <laughs> it's beautiful racism in 2017. I, I fucking love it. I Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I would rather that. I mean, look, it's still a lot of drama and tension. It's still difficult. But you can only go through that by going through that. You know, there's so many people saying we need to make sure that we don't make Trump voters uncomfortable in how we talk about racism, sexism, and so on. How do you feel about that? But you, the only way to avoid making people uncomfortable about these issues is just never talk about these right. issues. Right. And that's not a solution. So we have to have a plan that lets us work through that discomfort. We got to be able to sit in that discomfort together and figure out our way to the other side. So I'm glad to see that there's more and more space for that. I think conversation is overrated a lot of the times. And I want to get to that because I know you said like, I mean, conversation is gets tired when we're not doing. Yeah. Anything. You know, I'm all for thinking and talking about ideas, but it needs to be in service of action in some form. And that's sort of a way for us to be on TV and masturbate about these ideas and say, we're starting a national conversation on race. Like that's having a na national. That's been done. Yeah, that's been done. You know, we need we need to be talking and thinking right. and discussing and planning. But if there's no action item at the end of it, then we're just putting on a show so we can feel like good liberals. Now, let me let me let me let me share with you. I might have said this on a prior um, episode, but let me share with you why I appreciate racism in 2017. Um, ten, uh, ten years ago, 2000. Well, a little bit longer, 2005. I found myself in a situation where I knew I was being discriminated against my place of employment. And as I, as it became more tangible to me, I realized I had a choice. Take, take it, take, take the, you know, take, take the package. And it was a beautiful, robust package or sue a major corporation, which would not allow me to ever work at that corporation again. And it's a huge organization. You know what I'm saying? And 
I found it when I was even talking to my peers, you know, people of color, people that I felt were up on things. They were like, nah, you're bugging. Like, you, you don't, they didn't see racism. And, and Jay, it got to a point where I thought I was crazy. I was like, how is this shit so, um, how is this shit so insidious? How is this shit so, in, especially in New York City, how can we not see race? How can we easily argue race away? And I went through this really painful time where I was like, you know, I'm cutting myself off, but I'm also going crazy. Whereas now in 2017, we all see it. We all, I mean, I would, I would imagine, I mean, right? We see it. I mean, I think a lot of people have been awakened to it. They wanted to right. deny. But wasn't it more frustrating when a lot of people were not, quote unquote, woke? Yeah, I mean, and that's, I think that's the biggest change from what we look back on as the civil rights era, which is something that Martin Luther King spoke to in the last years of his life. You know, he said after Selma, we're entering an era where we've gotten all the big legal remedies we're going to get. And now we need to move from legal equality to real equality. And that's going to be subtle, systemic change that happens on a bunch of levels. And it's not always going to be some clear sign that we point to. And that era that we're in now involves forms of racism that aren't going to have the same smoke and gun that you had with something like legal segregation. You have to make inferences about what's going on. You have to make assumptions based on your experience. And people who don't share that experience will deny things that are the most obvious things to you because they don't want to believe it. Right. So I think that you think they don't want to believe it. I mean, as an attorney, right, I've learned that strategically somebody could say something I know very well is fact but because I don't want to lose my position and my argument I'd be like I don't know what the fuck you're talking about and I will talk circles around you you think it's that or do you think people don't want to see it or don't believe it I can't believe people can't see it I can't believe another human being can look at the, the nightly news and see innocent black life after innocent black life after innocent black life after innocent black life get cut down and say, well, thug, criminal, they shouldn't have resisted arrest. You know, going back to Richard Pryor, like, do they not see it or do they not want to see it? I think it can be some of both. I mean, there's definitely there's definitely people who have a reason to try to protect their piece of this pie and are going to act like they don't see but the human mind is capable of rationalizing all kinds of things. I mean, yes. there's all kinds Jesus. of social science that will show you when someone is committed to a belief and you show them facts that contradict the belief, they're going to stick to that belief even harder instead of changing their minds. That's just a cog- We have all these cognitive processes that push us into denial, which is why I don't understand all of these articles saying, hey, well, we talked to Trump voters and they said, this is how you can persuade us. You can't take that at face value because most human beings don't know how they are persuaded. It's very difficult to be in touch with how your mind is actually working. And what safeguards you have that 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 allow you to not be thrown off your sense of reality. Because right. really, when you change somebody's perspective, you're really taking them into a scary place, which is changing their perspective of reality. Right. And you're going to have all kind of defense mechanisms on a subconscious level that keep you from believing something, even when you're staring at the facts that mean you should believe it. You know, let's let's jump. I mean, we were talking about this medium that you're so brilliant in. And like I said, I'm so fucking jealous because when I look at your vlogs, man, <laughs> you're so fucking eloquent. You're so fucking witty. You're so quick. And then the directing that you do, you self-direct. I do. I do everything myself. Yeah, That's I do all amazing. the editing. Yeah, how did, oh, how, well, did thank you, you. how did you get into vlogging, man? 
Well, you know, at that, I started doing it around, what, 2006, and I had been Ill doing... Doctrine. Ill Doctrine, yeah. And I had been blogging, blogging on hiphopmusic.com for a long time, and it had reached the point where right? when I started... I helped to sort of build a when community. Start I started like 2002. Okay. And I got to help build a community of hip-hop blogs where we got to have really dope conversations. Right. Then it evolved to a point where there were so many voices that you kind of... And that writing, that, the, those think pieces got tired of... Yeah. got tired yeah, real yeah. quick, man. Yeah. You know, before we jump... Like, let's talk, you know, very few cats remember the golden age. No of, doubt. Of, 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 you know, hip-hop blogging, man. Yeah. Like, like, like what was that for you, man? Like seeing other like minds writing like like Dallas Penn or SK when he wrote or Byron Crawford the God. Yeah. Yeah. I mean at the time I started, there wasn't even the phrase hip hop blog didn't right. even really exist yet. Right. There were a few people like I think Jeff Chang, yes, uh Lindy Johnson, mm-hmm. maybe Oliver Wang, yes. uh that dude Hashim Warren. Mm-hmm. Um there were people who had blogs where they talk about hip hop once in a while, but Calling something a hip-hop blog wasn't even something you did yet. Right. So I was in it early enough that I could help set the stage for we're going to have hip-hop blogs where this is the mission to talk about the culture with this medium. And I got to see it build out to people How like, did that like feel? Dallas like three Penn, years later, like two, SK, Byron. I mean, Byron started out age. commenting on my blog yes. and then I started Wait, he started traffic. writing on your blog? No, no, he was a commenter. Like, he was a reader. Really? And then I, He was a hater? No, 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 no. He was. I think he became a hater later right, on because right. I took him off my blog role, <laughs> which wasn't that wasn't any beef on my right. end. He, you know, Byron. He's brilliant. Obviously, did you ever meet him, man? No, we not. I wish I could meet him. He might not want to meet me. I, I met don't him know. once. I met him once in, in, in two thousand and five mm-hmm. when he was the blog, blog god. Yeah, and I met him in Brooklyn, and it was his mom because his mom's from Brooklyn and they oh, they moved okay. out to St. Louis and and his mom is hood as shit. You know, no shots, but his mom is hood as shit. <laughs> and Brian was the most um introverted person I ever met. Yeah. It's like how could somebody so introverted have such a sharp wicked pen, man? Yeah, that's what I was saying. Like I think most introverts just need that space where they can let it shine. And it was amazing to see what that was for him. I mean, he just, his persona turned into a thing where I still respected it. But it didn't make sense for me to be affiliated with it. Like, he's in the lane that doesn't connect with my lane. So right. I took him off the blog roll. I think he felt some kind Did of way about anything, that. Man? He used to try to instigate beef, and I would <laughs> ignore it. Because, first of all, I didn't have beef. Second of all, right. if you're going to beef with Byron Crawford, like no, you, you got to set aside the next two months you for this battle you plan. You can't win. You cannot <laughs> so win. So I wasn't trying to step into it without reading Art of War. And, so, and, and I didn't want to do that because I didn't have no issues with him. He was just over in his lane, yeah, and I yeah, was yeah, in yeah, mine. Yeah, to yeah, me, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, and it's crazy, man. Like when I when I look back, man, and and, and I doubt I would be here today if it wasn't for Bible. Mm-hmm. Like I would not be here. Like it, yeah, it, and I gotta say, me I mean, up, just in terms of my competitive spirit, like my blog was the hip hop blog that got the most traffic for a long time. Talk then Byron, shit. Then, shit, Jay. then Byron became the top dog, right? And it reached a point where I. I I had to say to myself, okay, I can try to compete with him and, you know, I'm going to have supreme confidence in my abilities. I think I could compete with him. But instead of doing that, what I can do is take this to a different echelon and build something new. And it was right around that time their video blogging was starting to take off. So in a way, Byron was an, he was an inspiration for me getting into video blogging so I could sort of 
you know what, Byron's got this, and I'm gonna step on to the next thing and try to build over there. And that, that was when I really started doing the videos. Yo, how are you so fucking natural on your vlogs, man? It shit looks so easy. You make it look so fucking easy. I mean, there's a lot of work that goes into are, that. Of course, it's, metic- it it's meticulously so crafted. Right. But I think having the experience in radio, trying to fill up the space in a natural way and have it flow, I think, and, and just studying music, studying how songs are put together, how to construct something so it flows. Like I, I approach I mean, everything like I'm putting together like a Stevie Wonder song or a Prince song. That the, everything's I mean, going to be in just the right place. I mean, you rap, motherfucker. You, you rap and you sing. <laughs> I try I try to get it in when I can. You, you know? should not be so talented. <laughs> you should, one, no one vlog should be have so much power, dude. Like, you're so fucking talented, man. Well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a blessing that that form of video blogging, there's so many different elements that come together to get the message across effectively that it's just a great creative challenge. That, I mean, it, doing a blog where just your words on the page have to speak is a dope challenge yes. in and of itself. But making a video where I have to have just the right inflection, I got to be making just the right gestures, I got to have just the right pacing and rhythm, having all those elements come together to get the message I want to get across is just... It's a challenge that I love, and I have found that it connected with people in a unique way. Were you surprised at how popular your vlog became? Yeah, I would have never guessed because I was used to either being on the page or being on radio. So having people look in my face was like I wasn't entirely comfortable with that. And having a why? What because you're an introvert and people recognize you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Space when you were outside. Yeah, I'm mad, I was mad self-conscious about like what are, what are my facial tics, what am I doing with my hands. That process of just having to stare at my own face while I edit was like getting to know myself in a different way to feel comfortable putting myself out there. But once I did it, I found that there was something about communicating in this space that people felt, especially when I branched into talking about politics and race and things like that more often. Because at first I was trying to just build about hip hop right. for the most part. But the more I branched into talking about what else is going on in the world, people were like, okay, we need this voice in the mix. Was there ever a point where you're like, oh, shit, I'm, I'm getting too many hits. Like, where's this shit going to take me? <laughs> and it brings you on, on, cable, on cable TV, man. Like, how'd you feel about that, man? When, when, when it would bring you on a national level, man. Yeah, I mean, it was gradual enough that, you know, it's kind of like being the frog in the boiling water. Like, I didn't feel like I was dunked right into it. So I was able to sort of uh, work my way up to seeing each step as a new challenge, doing that TED Talk for the first time. That was my first time How doing public speaking. Shit, oh, it was terrifying, man, because I'm used to being in a room by myself making media. And then I send it out there and see if people liked it. Standing in front of a room of people talking and even knowing how to write a 20 minute talk instead of a five minute video. I was so scared. This was while Occupy Wall Street was going on. Right. I was seriously thinking about going down to Occupy and getting arrested, so that so I that would, so could. that I wouldn't have to do the TED talk. <laughs> you, you have a you, yo, here's my here's my here's my warrant, dude. I got arrested. But but it was but it was a Friday night, and I would have been in Central Book until Monday. So Eat those bologna decided, sandwiches. So I was like, nah, I better just go do no, this but you talk. Bodied it, man. You, you I was it. real happy with how it came out. Yeah. Right. So that and then doing TV, I was able to be blessed to go on MSNBC a number of times and sort of and then get, you went get viral. an understanding. Went viral, and then, yeah. 
You went viral. I yeah, you know someone. Can we talk about that? Let's, let's talk about. Yes. That. Can you walk us through that, man? Yeah. So I went on uh, Chris Hayes' show, who's someone I respect a lot in cable news. I think he's real I like sharp. He's real sharp. Show, man. Yeah, and he's a hip hop dude. He, he will come in. Yeah, show. for sure. Um, yeah. So we were talking about that Starbucks thing where they were going to have the Starbucks employees school everybody about race, yes. basically. Which is so insulting. It was a terrible idea. Yeah, and I have utmost respect for Starbucks staff. I think they're the coolest people. Like, they deal with these assholes that come up Better to the counter. They'll give you some special sauce. Right. I, let, I, love, I love hanging out in my Starbucks and just watching how they deal with all the tourists that come in. and Like, like the customer's always right, but right. You, you're not going to be that right. Right. <laughs> so, so I was trying to speak on their behalf and say, you, you can't put this burden on them to right. try and fix racism. Customer top from someone buying coffee. Right. So I was in a debate with a woman named Nancy Giles who was taken up defending the Starbucks thing. And at one point they played one of my videos and I could tell while we were watching the video, we were off camera and I was watching her because I've been in this situation where people think I'm white and they say something funny right. a million times. So I could see that something was brewing. And then when we came back on, Oh, she was so condescending. Yeah. And look, like I said, I'm not offended nowadays if you guess wrong, if you don't know what I am. That's all in the game. I'm not mad at that. But when you make the assumption and then do something malicious with it, then I feel some kind of way so, about that. So did you get the impression that she was kind of accusing you of appropriating Yeah. Black she thought I was the white guy acting black and acting hip-hop to right. get over with my hip-hop videos. And it was funny because me and Chris Hayes are pretty friendly, so she was watching her go on about, well, you doing this hip-hop way of talking. And I'm looking at Chris like, you're not going to help her out? And he was he was looking to be like, no, we're going to ride this till the wheels fall off. You left her for This is golden footage right here. So I tried to let her off the hook and say, well, hey, I'm a rap guy. You know, I didn't want to straight up take it there, but she just kept going. And finally I had to say, well... This is also interesting because you assumed I was white and I'm actually black. And these are the kind of conversations that you can look forward to at Starbucks everywhere. So it became ether. It became this big viral moment. Ether. You know, top trending topic on ether. Facebook. How do you how do you how do you deal with something that that, that goes so viral? It was on a trip. All platforms. Yeah, it was a trip. And I felt bad for her, even though. I thought she was kind of being foul. It became such being a big a, thing. She's being a jerk face. She was, that's, I mean. She, she was being a jerk, dude. I'm not, you don't have to say it. As somebody else that wasn't in the room, she was being disrespectful. Jerk wreck? Yeah, I can't disagree. And it wasn't until I got home that I really understood, because I couldn't see all the gestures she was doing, imitating how I talk, right. until I got home and watched it. And I was like, oh, okay. But it shows you how quickly any random moment on television could turn into something that defines you forever. So I, I was proud of being able to represent that way. Cause a lot of mixed race people and people who experienced that wrote to me, like it was so good to see someone on TV represent that experience and handle it. It meant a lot to me. So I was glad to be able to have handled it well, but it also showed me that a medium like television is mad volatile, mad volatile and I could go on some other show and it goes the other way. So I'll think twice before going on again after that. Did you get a lot of opportunities after that or a lot of offers? I did, but I mostly said no. Really? Like, like what, man? Like, well, they wanted me, they wanted us both to come back the next night and do it again. I said no, no that's to that. Of, that's corny. Yeah. I mean, I understand. Look, the game is a game. You got to get ratings. Yeah. No, I, I understood, but I felt like there was nothing to win off of that right. to me. 
Um, but I'll be very selective with going on TV because, I mean, you don't get paid for going on cable news. No. You don't have any control over what's going to happen. Like, if you go on a talk show, you do a pre-interview they tell you what the questions are going to be so you can prepare and make sure you represent yourself well. Cable news, you don't know what's going to happen. No. You have very little control. You're not getting paid to do it. So I'm going to be very selective. I, I have a lot of respect for Chris Hayes, so I'll go back on his show. Um, you know, Melissa Harris Perry's not on anymore. So nine times out of ten, I'm going to say no because I don't feel like it's worth my while compared to being in a space where I can make sure my message is coming across correctly. Have you been ever, ever offered been- ever been offered a job on TV? I have, but it's never been the sort of thing that would fit what I'm about. Like what? Uh, you don't have to sit name the organization, but like what kind of what kind of show have you Just been? shows that they would think about having me on just because they feel like I speak in the hip-hop language and I communicate well on camera, but it's not anything I would ever talk about organically. Right. Like they wanted me to audition to be the host of this, some show on... Uh, some kind of science-oriented show where I would talk about new science topics. But I feel like if you got some scientists to come host a hip-hop show mm. and front like he really, really knows hip-hop, I would feel some kind of way. I'm good at doing my homework and being able to talk about a topic like I know it, but I don't want to be that person. You're, so, you're a better uh, man than me because I'd be like, how much? Yeah. How hey, much? Yo? I'm not, I'm not saying not do as I do, job. believe me. <laughs> <laughs> so there's been, there's been opportunities, right. but... I'm still that introvert at heart that is going to be happy having a smaller platform where I can really do what I want to do and and say it how I want to say it. Exactly. Having full control. Exactly. You're a smart dude, man. I mean, there's pros and cons. I mean, I wish I was more business-minded. I could be a lot more comfortable. But I think whatever skill set and temperament you have, if you can find the lane that fits that, you can have a life. You know, um, you took a break Mm -hmm. from vlogging, man, and, and... uh, you lost somebody very close to you. Yeah, my girlfriend, my partner, June Kwan, passed away very suddenly about a year and a half ago. Um, just one of those things. She had a blood clot in her lung. Mm. So just wanted, just out of nowhere, Sudden, she woke like, up no, one like, morning. Didn't even know. Like, no, yeah. And I was out in Chicago at the time, got the phone call from her sister. And yeah, just one of those things that you know right away, this is a before and after in my life. And it put me into a space where I couldn't be creative. I couldn't work for a long time. And, you know, she was also a creative person. She was a filmmaker, film editor, was into politics the same way I am. And we connected over my work making videos. So whenever, you know, when she first passed, I thought to myself, I got to get back to the work and do it for her because we both had the same passion for this. Then whenever I would sit down to do it, I couldn't do it. And eventually I realized that getting back to this work again felt like the last step of moving into a life where she's not here anymore. And I just couldn't get myself to take that step. I would turn on the camera and just start crying when I press record. I just couldn't get myself to do it. And it it was having the year go by of processing her being gone and just periodically sitting down and talking to her and then sitting down on that anniversary and talking it out with her, like, this has been my year of saying goodbye to you. Now this next year is going to be the year that I make you proud. And it was when I came back to New York, I was out of town. That October, I really sat down and started trying to get back to work. Man, what you wrote about her, man, I'm not even going to front, man. That shit broke me down. I was crying. 
Like it, 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 it touched me. It's like the way you put your your loss and, and, and what she meant to you, man. Like, like, thank you for making me feel so emotional. Oh, well, that's, I appreciate hearing that. And it's a difficult thing because I'm a very private person. Right. You know, I, I've been a public figure since before the internet. So I'm accustomed to drawing specific boundaries about my public and private life that are different from most people nowadays that just be putting everything out there. So I did, normally on Facebook, I don't ever be talking about what relationship I'm in or anything like that. But I found after June passed that it was just a necessary thing to have that support system of my Facebook friends and that larger community of people who connect with my work, sharing what had happened with them, you know, sharing the transition and the process I'm going through of coming back to being to speak. I had to go through a process of coming back to being able to speak to all the people I speak to in the world. And it just wouldn't make sense to go through that process without letting people know what it was. And it became a very healing thing for me to share things I wouldn't normally share. That's dope, man. That's dope. Tell us about your uh, Patreon page, man. Yes, indeed. So I am fully back in the grind now. And I've been wanting for a long time to do this work directly for the people. I've had a lot of media partnerships. You know, I started out making videos for XXL Mag, thanks to Elliot Wilson and SK. And that was a real dope relationship. I've had a few good relationships like that, but I've always found it's at its best when I can just sit with it until it's done. I can go wherever I want to go and not worry about whether this company could use it. So I'm excited about doing this Patreon, doing it in a crowdfunded way and just doing the work for the people that want to support the work. So my Patreon is up right now, patreon.com slash ill doctrine. And I was expecting to have to fight to get to $100. But on the first day, we already broke $1,000. I'm real excited about people wanting to support the and work. it's been up since how long? I put it up on Friday. On Friday. Congratulations. And, what, and what's your goal? The baseline goal, get to 3000 a month. You know, I'm a man of humble means, right. and that'll let me fully focus on trying to build, keep making videos that speak to what's going on in this Trump era, and give people some comic relief, give them a space to breathe easy before they go back out there into the battle. Let, let me tell you something, man. Like, you, you're so talented. And you just said yourself, man. Like, you wish you had some, you know, better business, better, better business-minded. Why is your goal not 15000 like, <laughs> Well, this is, you can have multiple 15, goals. 15000 a month. Like, <laughs> yo, yo, listen, fuck that, yo. Jay Smooth <laughs> needs 20000 a hey. month, Internets. For him to do, don't do that shit unless you get twenty thousand a month. Let's put, let's raise the stakes on this. Shit. Let's get some money, man. I mean, you know what? When I get home, I'm putting that up as the secondary combat yes, jack sir. goal. Yes, sir. <laughs> yes, sir, man. Um, I'm, it, it, that'll be the get on combat jacks level goal. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, it's an honor to be able to do this work. I'm, you know, I'm trying to do more interviews, bring more, bring more voices into it instead of just me trying to talk out of my ass sitting right. at home every week. No, like, we miss you, man. We miss you, man. Yeah, I mean, it's such a blessing to be able to step away and come back and find that people still want to connect, people still want to have the conversations and build with me about these issues is a blessing. And I just, I want to be able to do my part now more than ever, right. now that we I mean, have uh, so your your president, as you put it. Yeah, yeah, not my president. <laughs> we got it, like we all, <laughs> nope, nope. all got to do our piece of the work right now. I so. did I did appreciate the, the, the special episode you recorded right after election day, man. Are you so angry, man? Yo. I came home, and usually when I make a video, I'll work on it like 10, 12 hours. I'll be there making sure I said everything how I want to say it. Election night, I was up at my mom's house watching the results. I came home. 20 minutes, I banged out this video. Very powerful, man. Just raging against this machine. You said the white racists 
have won. Yeah. They they voted for for hate. They voted for racism. White America chose hate. White America chose hate. And there's a lot of things you could say about the reasons it played out the way it did. I mean, no election is ever decided by any one thing. Right. But there were two types of Trump voters. There's Trump voters who were attracted to the racism, and there's Trump voters who were willing to overlook the racism. Right. Those are both two different kinds of racism at the end of the day. Doesn't mean they're all bad, irredeemable people. But that's a reality that we have to deal with when we analyze what happened. Right. I mean, isn't it scary also, man, when we look on a, on a global level and we see this nationalism going on on a global level right now in all these European countries, man? Yeah. Like, it's almost like if, you know what, fuck that. We, we, we let you motherfuckers, like, build in the whole nine. White racist supremacy on a global level is back. Isn't that shit scary? It's, I, it's scary. I mean, it's, it's going on all over the world. I mean, on one level, I think it's a product of fear on their part. Right. I think they see the tide of history working against them long term, and they're turning their stuff up to 11 to try to rage against the dying of the light. Right. But it's definitely scary as hell on our end, too. Yes, of course. Because this, this is a persistent form of devilry that's on a personal level, and it's on a systemic level, it's on a structural level. And especially, and on each one of those levels, it's entrenched in a way that takes generations to really fix. Right. So I think we need to have that long-term vision and remember every step forward always brings a backlash. You see that throughout history, going back to you have the Civil War, then you have the Reconstruction Era, you have the Civil Rights Movement, you have the Black Power Movement, then you have COINTELPRO, mm -hmm. you have Obama, mm -hmm. and then you, and you know, Obama was, I'm not saying... He was out here fixing everything either. No, but, but he that was an struck, struck a, a right. nerve. That's that's a step. Yes. And we see the backlash to that now. And you see the same thing in different forms with Brexit. Mm -hmm. People wanting to regain control or something it's scary that they feel like is out of their right control. I mean, yeah, yeah, hopefully Le Pen's not gonna get in, yeah, but, but that still, element's still, still gonna be up in there. Right. In twenty seventeen. Yeah. It's crazy, man. Yeah. So we like we need more than ever to we need to step to these elections with the short-term strategy that's going to help us do the long-term work. Yeah. Um, let's, let's, let's bring some levity to the conversation, man. 2008. Yep. Salon Magazine. <laughs> Names you one of the sexiest <laughs> men alive, man. Yeah, I mean, what yeah. What the fuck, man? Like, like, I don't know. <laughs> were they creeping in your DMs after that, man? I mean, a little hey, bit. Why? <laughs> <laughs> Did you enjoy? I mean, for an introvert to get that title, like I wasn't the, really. I'm not really the type of person that has a wherewithal to capitalize right. on that. But I mean, you know, it's flattering, right? <laughs> I, I was kind of like, but it was kind of the thing about it was they had real legit sex symbols, and then I was like the one nerdy regular dude who that they you, put who in was, who was in to your, balance who was in it your class at that time. Oh, man. Who was I don't, on your, your oh. freshman freshman double XL cover with you at that time? Yo, that's right? a good question. I don't remember, but it was a lot of the usual suspects. But it was people like the equivalent of Jesse Williams nowadays. I mean, people are mad at him right now. Right. But people like that Brother who were, Jesse. <laughs> man. Jesse, come on the show, man. Let's get you back with these uh, black women. <laughs> Yo, we lost Shay, we, we lost Shea Moisture and Word. Jesse Williams on the same fucking man. game, man. You're black women to tie. <laughs> I don't blame them. Man. I don't blame them. But anyway, so yeah, man. So did that did that affect your life in any way? I, it ain't really affect my life. Right. I mean, it's it's a funny thing to have on the Wikipedia page, <laughs> but that's not something I can really connect with me. Like right. that's that's a reaction 
true-to-media version of me on the Internet. Not that I'm a fake person when I'm making these videos, but that's that's something that's separate from the person I am out in my day-to-day to me. I mean, that's a great accomplishment, though, man. Very. Uh, yeah, I mean, hey. If I'm gonna be on an embarrassing list, I'll take that one. That, that's a that's a good list to be embarrassed by, man. Um, you used to work in a group home? I sure did. Throughout the '90s, the years that I was really starting off my radio show and developing it, um, I would come in and do the radio show on weekends, and then the whole week I spent up in Westchester uh, working at a group home for quote unquote emotionally disturbed kids. It was basically kids from the city that had some kind of rough situation at right. home and. You develop defense mechanisms to deal with that. That mean you can't really function well at school. You get kicked out of school, and you come and live with us at the group home. So I was working every day just trying to make a connection with these kids, trying to help them out. So you saw a lot of trauma firsthand. Yeah, I learned so much, man. And it was an important experience for me because I grew up in a household with a lot of addiction, depression, mental illness. So even though I never really shared this with the kids when I was working with them, there was a lot I could understand about their upbringing. And then they also, they went through things 10 times worse than I could right. imagine and still had. These these kids have so much resilience. I learned so much about how we deal with trauma, how we outgrow the defense mechanisms and work past that. You know, the, how you, you know, I was talking with uh, Lakeith Stansfield mm-hmm. from Get Out right. about how deep the concept of the sunken place is, how growing up black in America, if you go through hardship, psychologically it can put you in a sunken place you got to learn and that's i think the hardship these kids go through you are in a sunken place that you gradually learn to get yourself out of and i learned so much about that from from working with those kids and seeing them get a chance to save themselves we never we never saved a kid but we gave them a space where they could save themselves right you know and i bring that up man i think i might have seen you say this but i think i might have seen you say that you see that there's a pattern of trauma and dysfunction in hip-hop um i mean i think you see that throughout all walks of life there's been particular times i think i did a video about uh charles hamilton Mm. back when he was really having issues unraveling i saw a lot of my group home kids and him in terms of the way that he was handling getting all his fame really quickly and not being able to handle it And I think that's something we have to keep in mind with public figures and with each other now that we all have a public voice online that all of us are coming in to these interactions with some kind of trauma. All of us are acting things out that we had to learn to act out to protect ourselves before we got to where we are right Right. now talking to each other. And you got to be able to take a deep breath and cut some slack, have some mercy, and understand, like, this this person's coming at me a certain way. Right. But that could be for a hundred reasons on the path they were on before they got to me. Yeah, definitely, man, definitely. Um, You had any aspirations to rap, man? I I definitely always wanted to be able to make music. It's just never been something that got to be on the front burner because I'm always doing other things. Right. But that's, yeah, I mean, that was was always my dream growing up. I had my little... uh, Casio SK1. I was banging the beats out, writing my little rhymes. And, you know, I've been blessed to get my freestyles in here and there. You know, I had a few decent ones can you, on can Bob you and Stretch. Oh, no, no, no. Come no. on, man. You would have had to tell me. It's the Combat Jack show, <laughs> no, man. No, no, no. no, no. Can you have a pre written joint? You want to pull out the black? I would. I have it in a minute. Now that I'm making videos again, I'm going to get okay, back on it. Definitely, definitely, man. Um, what are you listening to today? What am I? I mean, I'm usually going back to old stuff. Yes. I'm not going to front, but. 
I like all the things you would expect an old head to like. Right. Uh, Kendrick, Anderson Pack. Um, I mean, I really like the new Rick Ross record. I mean, it's Rick Ross. That's a record that it's Rick Ross. I feel like a lot of people on our age will front on that, and yeah. I I don't dig everything he's expressing. Right. But musically, he's doing the kind of hip hop we want. To me, Rick Ross knows how, how to pick you? beats. Man, he has a great voice. Every time, people sleep on his pen. Every like, man, I mean, I, I, and, and these internets know I'm a huge Ross fan, and mm-hmm. I was excited when the album came out, and it did not let me down. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about Drake, man? I think Drake is real good at what he does. Yeah. It's not always my cup of tea, right. but I definitely respect the skill he brings to it. I mean, I enjoy the rapping more than the singing personally, and I. Sometimes I feel like he's he's just the type of person that's good at mastering any craft, mm-hmm. and he mastered the art of emceeing. Mm. And so, I, I mean, I don't know. I'm not sure how to say this without sounding okay. like I'm knocking oh. him. I, I feel like he's kind of like Donald Glover. Like, he's just a prodigy that can master any form. But isn't that a gift in itself? It is. You're right. I'm not knocking it, but, like, I don't. It's too easy? Are you saying it's too easy for him? It's just, on some level, it doesn't feel as real to me. Mm. I went, and he says all the right things and says them in just the right way. But when he says something like, uh, my only hope is I die real, I don't understand what in his actual life experience he's referring to. I just know he knows how to construct a verse. It sounds real dope when he says things like that. So I, I respect it, but I don't have as deep a connection to it. As right, I, I see. I, I, get, I get what you're saying. Man. And that's not, and I'm not trying to make that. Yes, sir. That's not supposed to be shade. Yes, sir. Last question. Top five of all oh, time. Oh God! In, in no particular order. <laughs> in no particular order. I mean, I gotta go. I'm of that age where I gotta go with Rakim first yes. and foremost. Yes. Absolutely. Oh man. I mean, I feel like the ones that don't get the credit they need is Run DMC. Mm. They did so much just to establish this as a permanent fixture. You know, they took it from singles driven to we're dropping classic albums. Like they said, we're going to be as legitimate. We're going to be here. And like American bandstands. I mean, they took it, they told the world, we're going to be here with forever. Two microphones and these turntables. We're going to be as legitimate in your world as any band. Yes. And uh, to me, they set the standard for hip-hop being something that's here to stay. That's a good and point, man. they set the standard f- to me for what a perfect hip-hop verse was up until Rakim came along right. and gave us the new blueprint. Right. So I, I feel like all of us can trace our presence here back to Run DMC. Of course, of course. Really laying the foundation. Of course. And uh, to me, one of the best ones doing it, just a master technician, is Pharaoh Manch. Mm being blessed to be able to be in a studio with him and watch him freestyle. It's just a mastery of his instrument. Like his cadence and inflection will and be flowing exactly he where he wants it to be. The composition is amazing. He's expressing some shit like this abstract ideas and consciousness being expressed when he does a live show. Last time I saw him, I was in the audience with some other MCs and they looked at me like, what, why does Farrell always sound like he did a different sound check than everyone else in the show? Because his voice just always comes out so crispy and clear. So overlooked, man. Yeah, he's, a, he's just an incredible master. How many is that, three? I'm going to say, oh, man. I mean, I love Andre 3000. Some people will say he doesn't have enough body of work, maybe. Okay, so my, my, my theory is 
He's cheating. He's rap cheating. You're going to Atlanta <laughs> next month. Safe. That's okay. I mean, you know, I got love for him. I just, I just feel that he's a rap cheater in terms of, I think, in this rap game, if we're looking at it as a competitive sport that it is, right? It's, 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 it's the consistency, but the consistency is always being in the game. And I, and, and I don't, I mean, and I'm not saying this from a bad place, but I think it's kind of easy when you can sit back and maybe write 300 verses and be like, you know what, here my, here is the darts I'm going to bless with the world. And that's, that's my only thing. If, if I, if I had seen him, you know, mixing it up with, with the contempt, with his contemporaries on a more regular, consistent basis, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. As opposed to come, you know, you're, you're rested, you come out. You hit a home run, you go back in the dugout. He's that good. Yeah, I mean, I mean yeah, it all comes down to what are the criteria right. you're going to go with because right. that's a totally valid argument. But for me, whatever someone represented at their best, whatever their impact was at their height, whoever moved me the most, I, I got to give them credit for that. So I would even I would round out the list. And I'm not arguing with you because I, I don't ever judge anybody's top five. Yeah, like, and I'm like, I would even... I'm going to pick Lauren as the fifth one. That's amazing. Even though she clearly didn't fulfill her potential. No, but when she was in the, when she was in the game, she right. was a murderer. Right, and that's almost like I'm giving it to her based on what I wish she would have been. Right. Like, I, if she would have just done two or three albums of Lost Ones, mm. that would have been a body of work that just mm. outshines almost every discography. I miss Lauren. And we never quite got that. But, but we, I still feel like I want to honor we, we the vision enough. of it that she gave we, us. We got enough, man. And, and Lauren, when she was on top of her game, she... And it she, came at just the right time yes. when we needed that spirit. Yes, yes, yes. J-Man, Ill Doctrine. It's coming back. We are, we are, we are back. We are back. I mean, we Patreon. need it. Patreon. Yes. Where can pa we support you again, man? Patreon.com slash Ill Doctrine. There's a whole bunch of goodies you could get for supporting, and we're going to keep putting in this work. Underground. Railroad. Uh, Underground Railroad every Friday night from 10 p.m. to midnight on WBAI 99.5 FM in New York. WBAI.org. I come on right after the great Chuck D from 8 to 10 p.m. So we got a hip-hop lineup on Friday night you want to check out. How do you feel? I, and, and I asked you this before, man. Like, I hate when people say I'm a pioneer. Because <laughs> it's, 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 you know, it's, it's, it's scary when we look at our rap pioneers and, and, and see how a lot of us struggle and, yeah. and we built industries on our backs so I, I get really nervous when they say that how do you feel when they call you a pioneer you know, i mean i'm honored by it for sure but I, I feel blessed to be in a position where i think i'm doing my best work now mm. i look back on the first 10 years of my radio show and because i was so young and really coming into myself i don't think i capitalized on it as much as i could have i think it could have become something bigger than it was but even though parts of me regret that, I feel like it put me on a path where I could be doing my best work that I'm the proudest of right now instead of looking back on when I was a pioneer and trying to run on those fumes. So I, I feel like it's a blessing to, you know, maybe I was a bit of a pioneer, but I feel like I'm putting in my best work as I go forward. Let's do some pioneeristic shit. Let's have this show in tw the next 27 years, man. Let's yeah, do we'll it. Back in, in 27 years. And, Let's and do it, man. Jay, was that? Thank you so much. Thank you, man. Jay An Slim. honor to be here. Can't Thank wait to so hear. Much, man. Thank you. King. What's up? What's up? It's, it's wild, man. It's like during that whole 2009, 2010, the height of the blogosphere to see this guy and, you know, see where, you know, where he's at now, man. I'm just, 
I'm looking for the next 10 years for our show. You know, TV shit. Shit, I'm trying to make our first 10 years. That's a fact. We got to make 10 years. It's only been seven. Yeah, I'm sure y'all are going to do it. It's only seven, man. And it's it's just so good to be able to take my voice out to other places, talking about politics where people, they don't know that I'm a hip-hop dude. But for me, I always know I'm representing hip-hop. And knowing I can always come back here to home base. Yes, sir. And that my hip-hop people appreciate what I'm doing, as long as I know that. And apologies, too, man. I was supposed to be on your show a couple of weeks ago. No doubt. Something came up. I couldn't do it. Um, but we we got to come on you, you, on Fridays, right? Every Friday we're there, Friday's man. A tough night, but we we, we got to go on the show, King. Absolutely, let's let's make that happen. Internets, you know what it is, man. Dream those dreams, and then man up, woman up, and live those dreams. Because a life without dreams is black or white, and the universe flows in technicolor and surround sound. Hey, yo, internets! Don't forget this week's episode of the Combat Jack Show is brought to you by the new Spotify original podcast, Mogul. The life and death of Chris Lighty. Mogul details one of the most illustrious careers in hip-hop. And Chris Lighty's rise to the pinnacle of musical success before an unfortunate and untimely end. The story is broader than just music. It's the story of the American dream told over dope dope beats and rhymes. This story is broader than just music. It's the story of the American dream over dope beats and dope rhymes. Mogul, the life and death of Chris Lighty is a Spotify original podcast produced by Gimlet Media and the Loudspeakers Network. Follow and listen to Mogul, The Life and Death of Chris Lighty, starting April 27th this week and every week on Spotify. This episode of the Combat Jack Show is produced by Jonathan Mena, executive produced by A. King, and this is an official Loudspeakers Network production. I'm I'm really mad y'all made me do that. I'm so mad right now. (laughs) Please don't post that anywhere. (laughs) I'm so mad at (laughs) y'all. Bop, bop, bop.